Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Man, it is such a great honor to be with you guys today. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about myself. I know you're like, man, who's this random dude? You know, I know Kyle gave me a, an introduction, but it's always hard to like, man, jump in and, and just listen here. I, I'm another South, like North Carolina dude. Um, and so I moved to Boston roughly 12 and a half years ago to help plant Redemption Hill Church. So Medford, so I'm north of the city, so this is new for me. I don't spend a ton of time south of the river, so I've enjoyed being down here in Brighton uh, this morning. I went to college at App State, which is in the mountains of North Carolina, and um, it was there that I met my wife. And it was in college that in a very fresh way, the Bible just came alive to me. And all the connections and things that I had been taught as a kid um, were just, the dots were connecting and I just fell in love with Jesus. Um, I also, uh, I may not look like this, but I played football in college. So um, people often say that I preach like the way I play football so I can be intense at times. So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to tone it down and uh, with you guys, but I just, I get passionate about things. And so, um, but, but I, the things that, man, I was just falling in love with Jesus, teaching these guys on the football team. And it just felt like God saying like, man, you need to spend your life doing this. And so at that time I did what anybody um, around me knew. It was like, hey, you, you graduated, then go to seminary. So I went to seminary. I'd never heard about church planting. I landed at seminary for the very first time. Like the concept of planting a church was just new to me. And I heard about that. And, and my wife and I just began praying, God, we felt led to get out of the Bible Belt and get to a major city. Um, and long story short, 2010 is when God brought us to Boston. And so we moved up with three other families and a single lady to plant Redemption Hill Church. I'm still a lay pastor elder there, but I've had the opportunity, like at Redemption Hill, we've, we've always been a part of, or I've had the opportunity to oversee summer and year long residencies for college students. And so just had the opportunity about six or seven years to oversee this thing called Gen Send and working with our Sin Boston network of churches. One of the things I love about COA is just like multiplying churches all over Greater Boston so that everyone everywhere has a chance to hear and respond and follow Jesus. And so I work for Sin Boston, which is a larger network that COA is a part of, um, to see churches planted across Greater Boston. And in particularly, I help mobilize college students to be a part of that. So by 2040, our hope and prayer is that we're at like 200 churches in Sin Boston, across Greater Boston. And I'm trying to mobilize 2000 college students to be a part of that. Now, many of them are, are locally here in the city, but I'm also connecting with college students outside of New England. And here's the message that I'm challenging them. Hey, you're gonna graduate and you're gonna go get a job somewhere. Don't just default to what's comfortable. Don't just default to mom and dad. Like, would you put your yes on the table to going living strategically somewhere for the glory of God? And Boston is a place that you could do that. Now, God may send church planners or ministry majors up here, but really who I'm getting after are the nurses, the finance, the engineers. Like, to, to think about your vocation as a workplace missionary, 
that you could step into these spaces and places and make Christ known through the great work you do as a job and just being friend to your coworkers around you. And I'm just praying, God, would you send like a highway of students our way? So that's in short what I get to do. The cool part about that is I, got to, I get to do that with a church like City on a Hill Brighton. So um, that's how Aaron and I get to work closely in overseeing Jensen and helping him shape and craft the experience. And let me just say thank you to you guys. Because one of the takeaways that our Jensen students tell me is that, man, our church just embraced us and we felt like family there. And so the more that you guys embrace that team and not just Aaron and Emily, but like as a church say, this is our team. We're gonna like make them one of us. That's what I often see a student saying, I wanna move back and be a part of Coa Brighton because they're now my family. So like, I hear that from you guys. So thank you for just your investment with them. Um, and, and just briefly, like the way Aaron and I got connected. Um, so married, I've got five kids. Um, Owen, hey, Owen, wave your hand back there. I got Owen, Owen's my middle kid. Um, we've got a junior in high school, all the way down to our two youngest we've adopted from China um, and they're fifth graders. Um, and so, but we're also licensed foster parents in the city. My wife actually is on the board of the foster box. Let me say thank you for like your investment in foster care. But that's how Aaron and Emily and I got connected. I remember us eating in Medford with them early on when they had moved here. And um, we had the privilege of introducing to them to this young girl named Kiana, who had spent some time in our home, and as they were sharing about some of the things God had put on her heart. And so it's just really cool, um, like beyond the church planting world, how we got to be a part of Aaron and Emily's life. And so it's now cool to be here and see this space where they're giving their lives to. So I wanna give you one encouragement before we jump into the text here. Planting and pastoring is wicked hard. I see some heads nodding here. Like, you, like I've been here 12 and a half years there. There are many things that we've sacrificed for the sake of the gospel and mission here. One of the things that's meant the most to me in ministry is when somebody takes the time to write a personal handwritten encouragement and send that to me. Not an email, not a text, like, like pen and paper, you guys know what that is. Um, and, and, and not criticism. I know there's plenty of criticism as Pat, like we hear that often, but just to say, you know what? I wanna pause and thank you for, for what you're doing for our church, for what you're doing in our city. So if you're like any way that you could bless Aaron and Emily over the next month as they're on sabbaticals, just write a note, you know, drop a, a couple of dunks gift cards in there. That'll help too, you know, and just like say thank you for what they've done for you personally and for this church. Um, we'll now turn in our attention to Luke chapter two. One of the reasons I love this passage is it combines anticipation with consummation. And it's probably why Christmas is also one of my favorite times of the year because Christmas is loaded with anticipation. I mean, what are the things you're anticipating right now? I don't know what like your next week looks like. It, it could be things you're anticipating that is anxiety inducing, but it could also be things you're anticipating that just fills you with a lot of hope and joy. Like, I don't know, maybe has anybody got a, a work Christmas party going on this week? Anybody? Maybe, no, 
few of you, yeah. So maybe that's something that you're looking forward to. Maybe, um, maybe there's a, a potential end of the year bonus that there, there could be some anticipation for. Maybe it's like, man, school's wrapping up and I'm anticipating like a week or two break from school. For me, a couple of things that I like to anticipate is, is time with family. Um, this Friday, the seven of us are gonna load up our minivan, <laughs> seven of us in a minivan, and we're gonna drive 17 hours to North Carolina. Yes, I heard the ooze. Would you pray for God's extra favor and grace upon us? And then our kids are gonna get to spend time with grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts. And man, like that is a, that is a time we're anticipating. It's gonna be just full of joy over the next week. Uh, you know, you can't talk about Christmas without thinking about presents, right? Like from a, from a, like, look, I know Jesus is the point of Christmas, but we can be like, we can be real here. Like who doesn't just love like opening like a good gift, right? Like, come on, you guys can talk back to me today. It's okay too. too. Um, like, man, like when you think about opening these gifts or these presents, maybe, you know, it's that anticipation of, of something you hope to get. But oftentimes like what can happen here is, man, that, that present like doesn't match reality or even it gets broken. Like I remember, I'm going back to like dating myself back, like I'm 41. So I, I, I maybe elevated the age in the room here today to help you guys out. So it's good. Um, I remember getting a weightlifting bench. <laughs> I don't know, that maybe probably never hit like your wish list. But uh, I remember on Christmas morning, within five minutes, I'd broke it. Like, and so like this gift that you had like, you had hoped for and then now it's broken. And so like this anticipation at times can even turn to disappointment. So like the presence, like we, we may be anticipating presence. I think also like from the giving standpoint, like I, the older that you get and as a parent, like you, you love giving gifts, it's not just your kids, but, but others, but like then to see like their faces, when like you've put this investment, this energy, this thought into that gift and to see their response to that gift. Like, where am I going with all this? Often anticipation results in disappointment, but that is not the case with the gospel and the arrival of Jesus. As our anticipation continues to rise, the closer we get to Christmas, my hope and prayer today is that God increases our anticipation, our longing, and our appreciation of the gift that Christ is for us. He truly is a gift that does not disappoint. So when we come to Luke 2 here, I want you to just like go back in time here you've got 400 years of silence from the end of the Old Testament and the, and the, the last scriptures that we have before, the, before Jesus steps onto the stage. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of, of an Israelite, of a Jew, of all these promises that God has given you. God, like 400 years. God, God are you there? Like, do you remember what you said? Or are you gonna come through? Are you gonna be faithful to these things that you've told us that you're gonna do? And then all of a sudden, the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And so what we have here in Luke 2 is the birth of Christ at the very beginning, which we're not focusing on today, but Jesus has been born. These angels appear to the shepherds and tell them these good news about what's happened. And they say, hey, you're gonna see this guy. And the the shepherds go and see and they worship Jesus. And then Jesus is, is circumcised on the eighth day. And that's where we pick up in the text today. And so what I wanna do is share three truths with you about what we learn about Jesus from Luke 2, 22 through 38. And the first one is this, Jesus is God's gift of redemption for Israel. Jesus is God's gift of redemption for Israel. Look at the text here. Let's just set the stage. He begins in verse 22 and it says, and when the time came for their purification, you see Mary would have been unclean for 40 days. Just pick, I'm not gonna go there today, but just put a little footnote. Go read Leviticus chapter 12. It unpacks all of the details according to the law. That's what the scriptures say here, right? Um, for their purification according to the law of Moses. Um, but after these 40 days, what Leviticus 12 says that she should do is that she should come to the temple and she should sacrifice one lamb for a burnt offering and then... Um, a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. What does the text say here? It says, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first comes, um, first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice to what is said in the law um, of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young, young pigeons. Here's what you may not realize unless you go and reflect on Leviticus 12. In Leviticus 12, if you did not have the money to offer a lamb, there was an exception made. And it says, well, in that case, you could offer um, two turtle doves or two pigeons instead. What's that tell us about Christ? As he humbled himself and became incarnate and became a man, Jesus came and he's identifying with those he came to save. We're not gonna look at this today, but Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. We see here in their purification is that with Mary and Joseph, they're identifying with, with the least of these, the people he came to save. Oh, and, and here's what is also interesting. We have here Mary and Joseph being presented as pious Jews, faithful, obedient to the law. And yet Jesus is the very one who's coming to fulfill that law. I mean, this whole purification, Jesus is coming to to purify us, to cleanse us of our sins. And so the very reason that they would have to do this and they're presenting their son as the one who is the fulfillment of all these things that it had been pointing towards. And so they come for purification, but also for presentation and dedication of the firstborn. It's almost Luke here is quoting specifically here, Exodus 13, verse two where the law said the firstborn male was to be presented and consecrated to the Lord. And so setting the stage here, you've got Mary and Joseph 
um, as law-abiding Jews, and it sets the stage for these two encounters between Simeon and Anna. And the first one is Simeon here. Let's continue in verse 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose young, um, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. You know, it's interesting at times reading the scriptures. And I love the fact that you guys are doing a reading plan for the new year. But, he, but even asking as you read through like, not just what it tells us, but what it doesn't tell us. I mean, what it, it doesn't say anything about Simeon's age here. We're not told about Simeon's vocation. What are we told about Simeon? What does it say? He was righteous and devout. He was anticipating, he was waiting, he was longing for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Let's dig in here, for example, uh, for, for a second on this word consolation. Another translation might be comfort or deliverance or restoration. Simeon was full of hope that God would rescue and comfort his people. Simply put, he really believed that God was gonna do what he said he was gonna do. Luke's language here, using this word consolation, strongly connects it with the messianic prophecies in Isaiah. I know right now y'all are studying Genesis, but as you go through the Old Testament, man, this Old Testament is pointing to and preparing the way for Jesus. So for example, here's one, Isaiah 51 verse three says this, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert, desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. You hear this in Isaiah 51, this longing, the Lord is gonna comfort and through his comfort, this is what he does. Did you hear the language of reversal? It says this, it says, um, her waste places, and making her wilderness like Eden. Like these places that have become destruction are now gonna be a garden and joy and gladness are gonna be found with her. And this is the hope we have in the gospel. Jesus is coming to reverse the effects of the fall. And that is what Simeon longed for. Additionally, it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Not only was the Holy Spirit upon him, it says the Holy Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now get this picture. You've got Mary and Joseph heading to the temple, obedient law-abiding Jews. At the very same time, the spirit of the Lord is working in Simeon and leading him to the same place. And so there's a divine collision here of God working to bring them together. So what happens? When Simeon comes to the temple, we see here in verse 27, and when he came in the spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, he erupts in prophetic praise to God. And notice what he says here. Lord, now you are letting your servant 
depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. One, you see here, he says, you're letting your servant depart in peace. In other words, he has this peace. In other words, God, you can do what you wish with my life now. You've been faithful. You've been obedient. Like God, you, you, you've, you've kept your word. You've told me your scriptures, Old Testament scriptures have pointed to the fulfillment or the sending of this Jesus. Now your Holy Spirit has said, I'm not gonna die until I see Jesus. And now that has happened. God, do with me as you wish. And so he's, he's erupting in praise for God's faithfulness. And let me just encourage you here. This should bring you a ton of comfort and assurance because God will keep his word. You can stake your life on the word of God. You can trust him because he is faithful. But also what we see in Simeon here is as he's held up as like an exemplary Israelite and Jew, um, he is also a representative for all of Israel. He has seen God's salvation and this salvation is glory to the people of Israel. He's the fulfillment of everything that God had promised to Israel. In that sense, this first truth, Jesus is God's gift for Israel. I want you just to see here, we see Paul often say this when he talks about the gospel, that Jesus came first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. We're gonna get to the Gentile in a second, but we've gotta see Jesus as this fulfillment to Israel. Then we have the second encounter, Anna. Look, I'm gonna come back and unpack 31 and 32 in a second. Let's get forward, um, let's get forward to verse 36. And it says, there was a prophetess, Anna, now that we, we've been introduced to the final character and she's presented as a woman of devotion to God. So I love this passage. You've got a man of God, Who's, who's righteous and devout and longing. And now you've got at the same time, a woman that's being highlighted. And I love what Luke does in, in his gospel, highlighting how God has worked in women. And so like to, to long to be like an Anna who had a heart to seek God. It says here, look what it says here. It says that um, she was a widow until she was 84 and she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. You may have a little footnote where it talks about her being a widow and it, I'll give you a couple of possibilities here. There, there are a couple of different variants in the text here um, on how we could translate this. One possibility is that she was either widowed, or she, so she was married for seven years. And then one possibility is she was either widowed for 84 additional years. So if that's the case, I don't, I don't know, like what age does she get married? I'm, I'm just gonna... Let's say she got married at 20. It probably was younger than that. But then she was married for seven years. She got 27 plus 84. Like in that scenario, she's over hundred years old here. In another scenario, what it's talking about is that she was widowed until the age of 84. So that she's 84. Regardless of like where you land on like on that translation, the point here is that she chose a lifetime of service to God, even over remarriage. 
Go read about First, First Timothy 5, where it's talking about widows just setting their hope on God. Not that remarriage is wrong, but that this is what she chose. She chose of just a faithfulness to God and running after him. And this daily activity of worship and fasting and prayer, totally focused on serving God. And look what happens. Verse 38, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Here we have different language. That redemption of Jerusalem is similar to this consolation. It's this this longing for God to, to bring fulfillment to all the things that he had promised. And notice there are two audiences she's, she's speaking to. Her first audience is to God. You see that? Look here. She gave thanks to God. She's giving thanks to God for his faithfulness. But second, she addresses the audience. So what's that tell us here? We, we're now, it's not just Simeon and Anna. There were others there who, who would like study the Old Testament. Like, how did they know this? Like, if we were to jump forward in Luke 24, after Jesus raises from the dead and he's spending time with his disciples, it says he went through the law of Moses, the Psalms and the prophets, and he explained to them everything concerning himself. Like, I would have loved to have been in that conversation with Jesus. We're just walking through the Old Testament and unpacking. And at the same time, like what this seems to indicate is there, yes, there were some Jews that probably had lost hope, but there were some that got the message of the Old Testament, that there was an anticipation, that there was a longing to see God bring fulfillment. But there's another cool truth here. Think about Simeon and Anna. Like I see them as just being elevated as exemplary followers of God. And yet what did they still need? They still needed Jesus. Though they were pious Jews, they were still unfulfilled and unsatisfied. The pious of Israel still longed for the arrival of Jesus and the redemption and salvation that God promised. And so look, I, I don't know your story. Maybe they're like, I, I don't know everybody, maybe you're here today and just popped in. It's like, man, it's near Christmas and I wanna, I wanna come and worship with Coa Brighton. But every single one of us, none of us are exempt and I love that what we were singing earlier, like this longing for my heart to find rest. Like all of us are restless and in need of the good news of Jesus. Even the pious of Israel needed the redemption that Jesus provided. So Jesus is God's gift of redemption for Israel. Second, Jesus is God's gift of redemption for the world. Go back to verse 31. And verse 31 here, in this prophetic praise that Simeon erupts to God, he says that you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is almost a, a direct quote from Isaiah 49 verse six. It's this picture here of light into the darkness of sin and separation from God. And the news is this, the salvation extends not just to the Jews, but to the world. And you guys are studying Genesis right now, right? 
I mean, that's been the plan from the beginning. Like, I don't know if you guys have gotten to Genesis 12 yet. We gotten to Abraham yet? No, but you're gonna get there and Abraham's gonna say, um, he's gonna pray, God, you've blessed me so that I can be a blessing, blessing to all the families of the earth. Like, why did God choose Abraham? Yes, God's gonna, he's gonna bring redemption to the Jews, but it's so the nations can worship. And I think this is why Mary and Joseph marveled. I mean, look at verse 33. It says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. I mean, namely this picture here that he is gonna bring salvation to the entire world. And Jesus would make this clear after his resurrection, when he's spending time with his disciples, he would say the great commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I love your core values, gospel, community, mission. And we hold all of these in tension. It is the gospel that is transforming and shaping every area of life. We do that in community and it propels us to live on mission. Let me ask you this, is mission optional? One of the things I get to do with my job is I get to travel to colleges and other churches to speak with college students. And so I was at a Christian college um, and talking with a student. And in, in this conversation, he said, yeah, I considered mission once but then decided to go into pastoral ministry. And I'll, I'll give him credit here. I'm not sure that he meant what he said, but what I heard was mission is optional. You can decide to do mission or not as if it was either mission or pastoral ministry or that mission was somehow at odds with pastoral ministry. And I would say, no. Like if you're gonna go in pastoral ministry, like you need to think about that within the mission of God. Like the larger vision of scripture. I, I like to think of, um, I like what Cal, Cal did earlier, like creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Um, I like to think of it in like six acts. So I'll just expand on that a little bit. Um, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church, new creation. So all I did was just take your... Um, your redemption piece and add in Israel, Jesus, church there, right? So think about this. Why does the church exist? Or to answer that question, maybe think about this. When will the church come to completion? Like, in this six-act drama, you right now live in act five. And the reason Acts 6 hasn't happened, new creation, is why? Because the Great Commission isn't fulfilled. Go make disciples of the nations. When that is done, Jesus comes back. Which means the church doesn't just send missionaries. The church is the missionary. We are sent to make disciples of the nations and that we're to connect all of life to the mission of God. 
which means whether you're in full-time pastoral ministry work or you are a full-time workplace missionary, I want you to live and think like a missionary. Like where you live, God has providentially placed you there. And the best person for you to reach, to reach your neighbors is you. Where you work, God has providentially placed you there and your coworkers and the best person to share the light of the hope of the gospel is you. I get a little excited about this. Jesus is God's gift of redemption for the world. Finally, Jesus is a gift that demands a response. Jesus is a gift that demands a response. Simeon's encounter with Joseph and Mary and Jesus ends on somewhat of a negative note. Look in verse 34. It says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's going on here? I want to break down both of these sections and, and unpack it for you. First, he says a sword will pierce through Mary's own soul. That's a, that's a negative, that's not a good thing. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty horrific image here. Um, it's, it's a graphic image of her soul being pierced by a very large, broad, two-edged soul. In other words, Jesus, Simeon's saying, Jesus is going to bring you extreme emotional pain. How is that? How does Jesus pierce her soul. I'm going to give you what I think are two reasons and how he brings emotional pain. The first one is this. It's going to be the pain and sorrow he brings her as he creates his own family of disciples with his own priorities. Did you hear that? It's, I mean, think about this. Like I've got five kids. I love my kids. But for Jesus, I mean, you read through Luke and you hear him say, if you do not hate your father and your mother and your brother, you cannot be like, he's creating this family that have, Jesus is gonna talk about his father, his heavenly father. I mean, later on in this chapter, what happens? He grows up, he turns 12 and his parents lose him. And where is he? He's in the temple. And what does he say in the temple? Like his parents like, they're like, what's going on, Jesus? And in verse 49 of chapter two, if you just come on down, he says, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? I mean, do you hear that? Like from a mother to like here as a 12 year old son. And he's like, there's another father that I have priorities over you. Let me just speak briefly for a second. As I spend time with college students, I've also thought about what are the barriers to fulfilling the mission of God? And I think one of the barriers is the idol of relationships. 
Now, here's what I mean by that. Following Jesus. Well, let me just share an illustration with you. Um, actually, no. In Luke 9, if you're there, flip to Luke 9 real quick. Luke 9, he's talking about discipleship. Luke 9, 57. No, Luke 9, 59. I'm not going to preach a second sermon. I'm just going to highlight another verse or two. Uh, he's, he, Jesus is interacting with different people that are like, He's talking about following a disciple. And he, he says in verse 59, to another, he said, follow me. But he said, hey, let me first go bury my father. Hey, G- hey Jesus, is it okay? Like my father just died. Can I bury him first? And what does Jesus say? Um, Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet to another, he said, I will follow you. But first, can I, can I say farewell to those at home? Can I just go say, hey, bye mom, bye dad, bye Owen. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is hard. Let me ask this, are these unreasonable requests? I would say no. They are not unreasonable requests. So what's the issue? What's Jesus teaching his disciples? Our initial response should always be Jesus over everything. And there may be a season where, nope, I can't bury because this has got to happen. I would say the normal, he's not saying, man, it would like the loving thing to do would be go care for your family because he also talks about that as well. But if these two things are conflicting, Jesus always wins. Hey, when we were, um, I love Halloween in Boston because it's like next level um, up here, right? Um, For me, I see it as a missional opportunity to engage my neighbor. So we're walking through our neighborhood. Owen's with me. I mean, we're talking just two months ago. One of my neighbors, she's a realtor, um, and um, she's like bragging on her kids, which which is cool. I think her her son was maybe 20, 21, 22, had just come home, got a new tattoo. You know, that's Boston too, get it tatted up, right? So the tattoo, she was bragging. She said, I was just so proud of him. Um, she was like, it was as if like, I felt so much, I'd done my job as a parent with this tattoo. And do you know what it said? It was right here on this form. Family over everything. Is that a bad tattoo? No, I love my family. I love my kids. But I, I was talking to my wife later and I said, she, you know, she's not thinking this. But if my kids conclude that I've done my job when they say family over everything, I failed as a parent because it's not family over everything. It's Jesus over everything. And I hold out my kids and say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done and send them and use them however you want. I'm getting a little passionate here again. Sorry about that. He brought her pain because he was cultivating a new community. Another reason he brought her pain is because he engaged in a ministry with such dedication that resulted in his tragic death. This one probably doesn't surprise you. You could imagine Mary when Jesus is being crucified and the pain that that would bring her. So going back to Luke, 
There's one other thing Simeon mentions with, with kind of a negative tone. He says in verse 34, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Here's the deal as I wrap up. Jesus divides Israel. Some will fall. Some will rise. He's, the imagery he's pulling from here is the imagery of a stone in the Old Testament. And at different times, the Old Testament talks about there being a stumbling stone by which somebody trips or falls over. For that person, Jesus isn't a hope of promises fulfilled, but rather a figure who's to be opposed. This is hinting at rejection and suffering. But this same imagery in the Old Testament, while some are gonna trip and stumble over this stone, others, it's gonna be a precious cornerstone. For them, they stake their life on this stone. Jesus is the promised savior and they embrace and receive him and they rise. So here, don't miss this point. You can't stay neutral with Jesus. You can't remain neutral with Jesus. You either fall or you rise. I mean, we're in New England. Like we realize there, there's not a ton of genuine followers of Christ here, right? So it, it probably doesn't surprise us that some are gonna fall. But at the same time, it shouldn't surprise us that some rise. Yes, some are gonna fall, but some will rise. We know the end of the story. Revelation tells us there's gonna be people from every tribe, tongue, language, people. That is consummation. That is new creation. That's the end of the story that Kyle talked about. That's where we're headed. And so we can give our life to this because yes, some are gonna fall, but some will rise. And this gives me great hope. I don't know who's gonna fall and who's gonna rise, but I do know that some will rise. And what God's called me to do is just go fish and to be a faithful fisherman. So let me, as we wrap up here, let me just make it personal. Where do you stand with Jesus? Will you be a vessel used by God to share his good news to the world that some might rise? And let me encourage you with this. Knowing that some will rise, I believe should give you boldness. It should make you bold. Look, I'm tempted at times to rise. God would never save that person. Well, here's the deal. You let God make that decision. You don't make that decision. Like, don't write somebody off. You leave that to God. You go invite them to treasure Jesus. It should make you bold. It should give you patience. Don't give up on someone if you don't see immediate results and it should make you prayerful. Go plead before God. Be like an Anna, fasting, praying, seeking God's face for him to come and his mission and will to be fulfilled. What if our days as followers of Jesus 
were so marked by anticipation, the kind of Simeon and Anna for God to move and work in us and around us. What if that anticipation led us to constant prayer and fasting like Anna? And so as we wrap up, like what we see for Simeon and Anna is that they embrace Jesus and it's a call for us to do the same. And so, you know, as we wrap up, the main point that I want you to get is that we should embrace Jesus as God's gift of redemption for all people. Let's pray. 